This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, you know, before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the rise of outlaw country music and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision in her tiny living room, far from Nashville's music row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Hey, I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the St. Jude kids. St. Jude's doing incredible work fighting childhood cancer. And because of donations, like the ones that you get, families never receive a bill ever from St. Jude for treatment, travel, housing, food, none of that. Help St. Jude stop childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope. Get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. It's going to look great on you. So join all the doctors, researchers, and me in this fight. All right, text the word Bobby. It's only six numbers to 785-833. Again, text the word Bobby to just these six numbers, 785-833. Welcome to episode 324. Pretty great episode with somebody that I love, Tracy Lawrence. First of all, he talks about why radio stations did not want to play one of his biggest hits, which is interesting. Also, the story of when he was shot four times, and he celebrates 30 years in country music. So, Tracy Lawrence, just in a few minutes. Uh, Top five releases this week. Hardy released a new song featuring Travis Denning and Josh Thompson. It's called Beer With My Buddies, and here's a clip of that. song on the list here at number four, Dan and Shay put out a new Christmas song called Officially Christmas. It's officially Christmas and I'm officially yours. At number three, Taylor Swift released Red, Taylor's version. Here's a new song with Chris Stapleton called I Bet You Think About Me. But now that we're done and it's over, I bet it's hard to believe. has a new song out called Doing This, which he performed at the CMAs and released right after the show on Wednesday night. Here's a clip. And at number one, Nirvana released the Nevermind 30th Anniversary Edition. If you're a Nirvana fan like I am, or was, the album itself has been remastered, which to me isn't always the coolest. That just means they've moved some levers up and down. But they've added some stuff to, you know, some concerts from the Nevermind World Tour. I think four complete concerts. So that's pretty cool, stuff you hadn't heard yet. Here's a never-before-released version of Lithium. I found God. Yeah. That's 
awesome. It's cool. Yeah, I love that. Hearing <laughs> that old school concert footage, that's awesome. That's cool. That's cool. All right, there you go. Those are my favorite releases this week. Uh, as far as albums go, Eric Clapton has one, Rise Against, Silk Sonic, An Evening with Silk Sonic. Um, other than that, that's your music. You guys go check it out. Tracy Lawrence coming up in a second. It's funny, when I was walking over here, I was, I was like, ah, oh, Tracy's over. Come over, talk to you. And I started in my head as I was walking in the front door, I just started going, pay me a Burmy. It's like, I just think <laughs> about you. And that's the song that comes to my mind when I think about you. It's what an iconic song, wasn't it? It was, it was a massive record. You know, I've been blessed with a lot of number ones in the business. But that one only got top five. You know? Which we were talking about before you got here. Because I'm always fascinated by songs that become an artist's, you know, one of your career songs. Yeah. But, and it doesn't matter if it was number one now, because everybody knows it and assi- associates it with you. But that wasn't a number one song. Do you yeah. remember what beat it out? I don't remember. You know, it was uh, uh, I, I, it was the first thing that we had released when I moved over to DreamWorks from Warner Brothers. So there was there was a political shuffle that had happened. That whole time frame, that album was actually cut on Warner Brothers. And uh, 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 James Stroud was running DreamWorks at the time. Scott Borchetta was the head of promotion. So we had our own deal worked out, and we couldn't get Warner Brothers to release us. They wouldn't get the paperwork done. We waited and waited and waited, and we were trying to be patient and getting all our T's crossed and I's dotted and all that stuff. And then, lo and behold, if Ken Mellons doesn't drop a single, the same song. And uh, then the lawyers got involved. Then it's like, okay, we're done. We've been waiting to release a single, and here, here's somebody else has got their hands on it. So we, we came and got aggressive. And it, uh, I think there was uh, just some some things going on around DreamWorks at the time, and it, it was probably Toby that was ahead of us that kept us from going in. But they uh, they just felt like it was time to let it go and move on. I, but it but it was a massive hit, man. That thing impacted hard. Yeah, I was going to ask: Is it massive because it's lasted, or was it massive then? And for some reason, you're like, why can't we get this to number one? Because I'm feeling it when I'm playing shows. You know. Uh, <sighs> It was massive because it was massive. It, it really, and I, you know, all number ones aren't aren't that way. I've had a lot of them that, you know, they they manipulated the numbers. They went in on a dying breath. Some things fell out of the top. Whatever the reasons were, uh, I don't think I don't think the longevity of the song needs to be determined by how far it went up on the charts. And there's there's a there's a you know a marquee to all that stuff too. But I, I think the longevity. Of it speaks for itself. I mean, it's it's one of those songs that just connected with people. You know, Hank. I don't think Hank Jr. had a number one song for years and years. All that early stuff that was so massive for him. I mean, most of those were just top tens, but they impacted. They left a they left an indelible mark in people's mind. I remember, and I didn't know at the time as a kid listening to that song. I didn't know what a key change was. It was only later in my life when I learned a bit about music to understand what a key chain was, was and how hard it was to do. But there's a key change in Paint Me a Birmingham that you do. Yes. That when listening back to it, I still get chill bumps because it's like it goes to a next level the when you do that. Yeah. steps up. And what we do live, I closed the show with it. I've been closing the show with it for a long time. So we built this big power pop guitar solo into it that just really elevates it. When you hit that mod, it just... Whoa. You know, I think one of the things that made that record so special too is nobody really knew what a Birmingham was. They thought, you know, you had people that thought I was talking about the city, that I'd left my love in Birmingham. You had people thought about, you know, it's uh, uh, um, whatever the scenario was. But what I found out later on, maybe I didn't really even know what it was until later on. But the song is actually written about a house called a Birmingham. It's a style of house. And we've talked about that in the past before. So I think the being able to interpret that song 
and be something that anybody wanted it to be made was one of the things that made it so special. It wasn't locked into just being what it was. You can interpret it many different ways. Which a lot of great songs have that. Absolutely. Because what makes it great is so many people can relate, and sometimes so many people find their own relationship with the song. And I think that's what this song does. Like Everyone finds their relationship with this song. Absolutely. And they make it fit their own mental picture mm-hmm. of what that is. Another song that, that was like that for me uh, was Texas Tornado. Mm. And out of all the things that I've had, I think Texas Tornado impacted the young kids more than anything else that I ever did. And and the only thing that I can correlate that to is how many times as a kid did your mother say, your room looks like a tornado hit it. So I think that it had that perception to young kids and they were they, they found a way to relate to it on a different level because I never saw that, that, that correlation when I cut that song either. I mean, I associate you with Arkansas. But you, you mentioned Texas. You were born in Texas? Uh, I was born in Atlanta, Texas, uh, 1968. All my Lawrence family lives, lived in Texas, lives there. I didn't, my mother remarried when I was very young, so I didn't grow up there. But I spent all of my summers and Christmas holidays in Queen City, Atlanta, when I was a kid growing up. Because to me, you're an Arkansan. Oh, absolutely. And when I was going back looking at, you know, sometimes I feel like I know people so well that I need to go back and re-look at them as, as a researcher. Yep. And it was like, Tracy was born in Texas. I was like, he was? Well, see, I'm, I could be a little bit of an oaky too, because where I grew up in that, Foreman, Arkansas is right in the very last little corner of the state of Arkansas. It borders Red River, across Red River going to Texas. Oklahoma is like seven minutes away, because that's where the beer joint was. Know it well. Uh, and so that Arklatex area is what we called it. So I got influences from Arkansas and Texas and Louisiana and Oklahoma and all that stuff right there. So it had its kind of own unique vibe to it. As a kid, what were you listening to? Man, I listened to everything. I remember as early back, three or four years old, you know, Glenn Campbell variety show was on. So I remember, you know, a lot of Glenn Campbell stuff, a lot of early Charlie Pride stuff. Uh, but I also remember listening to some pop stuff when I was a kid growing up too, just whatever things were on the radio. But country was always, country was the foundation for me. I was talking to somebody recently, and for me, you know, being, my formidable years were the 90s. Yeah. And so, I mean, I turned 10 in 1990. And country music was the first music to me growing up in a rural town in Arkansas that talked about where I was from. Yeah. Because no, nothing else talked about rural towns, what it was like growing up That's right. um, in the South. And so I had country music as my base, but alternative music in the 90s to me was talking about how I felt. And so it was the, those were the two types of music that, you know, I listened to Kiss in 96 uh, and Little Rock. Bob Robbins in the morning. Oh yeah, and then I would, which I'm on, the, I'm not station now, so it's super cool to, to be on the station now. But then I would listen to alternative music to go. Okay, I have like angst, and country music wasn't the angst music then. But what was great about country music back then was you could actually have adults sing adult songs, and so where now you got you know you could be ten and listen to country music and relate. You know, you were probably like me, even even when I was a kid, uh, when I would hear really sad heartbreak songs. They would, they would move me. I'd get emotional about it, uh, love songs, about love gone wrong and your woman cheated on you and all that stuff. I'd never experienced any of it, but there was something about it that moved me inside. Now, the other really style of music that really grabbed a hold of me that I wished that I would have had the voice range to do that was ACDC and the ZZ Top and the, the really early thrashing guitar stuff. I really got into that stuff a lot in the mid-'80s when I was in high school. I mean, I loved all that. That was the cruising around music that we listened to a whole lot. Uh, mixed in with a lot of the George Strait and Bo Cephas and all that kind of stuff, too. But those were my two go-tos. What about in your house growing up? What was kind of put on to you? 
that, that, that influenced you? Nothing. Really? You know, um, my mom had a record player, and it had uh, Jim Reeves stuff and a little bit of old Elvis, but my I didn't grow up in a musical household. Uh, Daddy was just never into it. There, I remember times riding in the car and never even listening to the radio. I mean, there were times he'd turn it off. He just didn't want to hear it. It was noise to him. So I, I was kind of uh, on an island by myself as a kid growing up, just really hungry for music and soaking it in any place that I could get it. Uh, and really didn't grow up around very many musicians. There weren't a lot of people that played instruments around me. Got in the band in junior high school, played trumpet in the marching band for many years, uh, but really just started gravitating more guitar, country music, and that kind of stuff as I kind of grew. But you say gravitating. Like, for the gravity to pull you, there has to be some sort of influence that makes you think there's a chance. Even oh, the two. A- the two for that. Man, it was, it was a defining moment. Twelve years old. Uh, I was already getting into Merle Haggard. Uh, and, and I was starting to learn to play guitar. I mean, a lot of that early stuff, the Haggard stuff, I, I had a natural voice to sing Earl Haggard when I was young. And, and most of the songs were, you know, three or four chord things. They were pretty easy to learn to play as you were learning to play guitar. And then, and then George Strait hit. So when George Strait came out, that, that Texas honky-tonk, a uh, little bit of Bob Wills influence with the twin fiddle sounds, man, I fell in love with it. it, it I was done then. And really, that was the time that you had uh, uh, the fireman that came out. You had unwound those early records, uh, and then then the chair came out. You know, and and it was so cool when I came to Nashville. I got to write with Dean Dillon, and I got to write with Hank Cocker, and I got to spend time with those guys. So that's those are pretty cool things for me as I as I evolved into this place and, and became successful in the business to be able to meet some of those guys that that had such an impact on my life. Were you a decent horn player? You know, I was first year for a long time, uh, awful sight reader. I, I didn't like to read the music. Uh, I had a guy named Jay Smith that sat next to me. So the first of every year, Jay, Jay was a great reader of music. So he would, he would learn how to play it, and I'd figure it out, and then I'd smoke him more. <laughs> <laughs> and you learned of your love, not of listening to music, but playing music in the band? Uh, yeah, really. But, man, country music was always there. I mean, I... I, I, my mother's told me this story. Obviously, I don't remember it, but she would tell me when I was uh, when I was three and four years old that I said I, I looked like Glenn Campbell and I sang like Charlie Pride. To them, were you a performer in the house at six, seven years old? Yeah, I was. It was just it was just there. It was part of my identity. I, you know, when I was born, uh, my mother had. Uh, I have an older brother and an older sister uh, by by our biological parents, and they divorced, and then my mother remarried our father, and uh, had me. So she says that it was like the happiest time in her life, and she spent a lot of time listening to the radio. If I would have been born a girl, my name was going to be Loretta Lynn. So I was I was indoctrinated before I even hit the ground. At what age did you move to Nashville? Uh, I moved to Nashville in 1990. I was 23. Came in September of 90. So what did you do from high school, when you finished high school, up until 23 years old? College for a couple of years, went to SAU. Mule Riders, baby. South Arkansas, yeah. Yep. Uh, went into MassCom, uh, studied radio, television production. Uh, uh, was there on a choir scholarship, singing in the choral ensemble with the blue tuxedos, singing <laughs> Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, all that stuff. Hated it. Uh, but, you know, I, I didn't really, I didn't know anybody. And the smartest path to me was to, to at least go to college and check it out and see if a radio was the avenue to get in because I didn't know what to do. Uh, and and I knew that just sitting around playing VFWs and stuff was not the answer. So I was just searching for a path. Were you doing that? Were you going around playing all the VFWs? And- oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I started off when I was 14. I had a sheriff's deputy that, that I met. Uh, I was playing a talent show at a county fair. 
And uh, when I was about 14, and he kind of took me under his wing, he played Jerry Lee Lewis-style piano, and his wife would sing the Patsy Cline stuff. And we had uh, a jamboree hall in, in Derricks, Arkansas. There was uh, a, a, a jamboree hall in Ashdown where they'd converted an old theater. There was one, a guy named Buster Doss had one called Buster Doss's Frontier Jamboree in Mount Pleasant, Texas. So there were, there were several of them around. And they would bring it in kind of like the, the, the Opry-type situation where you'd have a house band, you would have the young acts that would do a couple of songs, and then you would have a headliner that would come in and play the back half of the night. And so uh, the, my buddy, would he would come in with him and his wife and play the show, and I would go. And so that was my introduction to getting on stage playing with a band. Wound up with my first band uh, that was based out of Delight, Arkansas, which is the home of Glenn Campbell. A lot of guys that were in their late 30s, early 40s and stuff, and here I'm a 16-year-old kid, and I'm starting to play at the VFWs and the Elks Lodges and all that kind of stuff. So that was that was a big growth period for me where I really started going and playing, you know, four sets a night and really having to learn to grind things out and finding my voice and uh, learning which thing, which artists I could emulate. You know, there was you had your Ricky Van Sheltons and you had your – you know, your Dwight Yoakams and all those things were big, and Randy Travis was out. So a lot of those baritone singers were people that I really, I would really try to emulate everything down to the way they breathed in between phrases and all that stuff. And and it, it took me getting to Nashville to really find out what my true voice was. So, But but I, that was the foundation for all of that for me. When you're playing in a band and you're 16 and they're 30 to 40, what are you, are, are you the lead singer? Are you playing rhythm guitar? Like I was what? the lead singer. I sang the whole night. It was all me. I, I was an a awful guitar player, so I'm, I don't think they ever put me in the mix, but I would stand up there with my Bangor hat on. I was about that big around like a broom handle <laughs> and sing all the George Strait songs I could work up, you know. So you go to college. Did you, did you graduate college or did you leave I did early? Not. I left okay. early. So when you leave, did you, what did you pursue? Because there's still a gap between before you moved to Nashville. I, uh, I went back to Texarkana for a little bit and worked construction for a while, uh, still playing with the same little band that I played with through high school, a few musician changes and stuff. And I played with them through the first two years of college where I'd go play on the weekends and stuff and come back. I, I, was, I had got a strange call from a, a band out of Louisiana. The band was called Phoenix. And uh, they invited me to come start singing with them. And they were playing a, pretty, a little bit better circuit with some bigger nightclubs and things. So I wound up moving to uh, Spring Hill, Louisiana. Lived there for a little bit. From there, I lived in Ruston for a little bit. Uh, and was living in Ruston in 1990 prior to when I moved to Nashville. And I had uh, I had re-enrolled in Louisiana. I had enrolled in Louisiana Tech. I was going to go back and finish my degree, and uh, I was getting close to the time where I had to make some decisions. And I and it just dawned on me if I if I start classes here, I'm going to wind up getting married and have some kids. If I'm going to go, I need to go now. And I packed up everything and and said I signed R. Came to Nashville. So when you get to Nashville, was it to be a singer, be a songwriter? Like what was up first in your your plan? Uh, you know. What I did first, I started hanging out at all the clubs that I could find where the local, uh, where the songwriters hung out and the road musicians played. Uh, and uh, I started writing a ton of songs. That was really the, the very foundation for me. But mine happened really fast, man. So from September of 90, I started, uh, I, there were places back then were like Gabe's. There was two clubs on Trinity Lane, Gabe's and the Broken Spoke. The Broken Spoke was in the hotel right there. I think it was a Ramadian back then. Gabe's was a little cinder block building that was right behind it. You had the Rose Room that was out on Stewart's Ferry Pike. And the, there was another one that changed names several times that was out on Murfreesboro Road. But I would go hit all those places, any place that they would let me get on stage and sing. And I did that for a few months. That led me to getting me getting invited up to play at a jamboree-style place called Live at Libby's that was all the way over in Daysville, Kentucky. 
And every Saturday night from in like the middle of December on, I started going up there and it was the same type of opera situation that I started off doing where they'd have, you know, young kids opening up to a couple songs and then they'd have a headliner. So they had their, they had uh, the, the George Jones impersonator and the Johnny Cass impersonator and all that kind of stuff. So I started going up to, to Daysville singing at Live at Libby's on Saturday night. Well, radio station called, can I say the call letter? Oh, yeah, of course. WBVR, broadcast back in the Nashville every Saturday night. So people started hearing me on the radio. Uh, there was a young lady that was performing on the show, and she was working with a management group, and they had brought some executives from Atlantic Records over to see her before Christmas in 1990. And they liked me better than they liked her. The wheels started turning. In January of 91, I did a showcase at the Bluebird Cafe where Rick Blackburn from Atlantic Records agreed to sign me. In May of 91, the third week of May of 91, I walked in the studio, I signed my contract, and I cut sticks and stones. That's quick. Seven months. That's quick. I mean, that's one of the quicker... That's as fast as I've ever heard anybody. Yeah. No management, no relations. I never knocked on a door. I never did any of it. I walked in the studio and cut 10 songs. Your first number one, Sticks and Stones, and I want to get to that in a second um, when we start talking about music, but when you say you moved here in 90, and so many of my friends, we, we kind of have like a class. Like when I moved to town, it was, all, it was people like Dan and Shay. They had moved to yep. town. And like we're all new at the same time. Yep. And so I'm in, and I, I'm, I'm becoming friends with them, and none of, I don't really have much going on. They don't have much going on. So you kind of have all these folks that are, are, are getting their feet wet in Nashville at the same time. When you moved to Nashville in 1990, can you think of anyone back that was around, you know, new class? There was two of them. Uh, the two that I was friends with actually did pretty well for themselves. There were quite a few of them that were running the bars that, that kind of fell off the, the, the tracks. Or never. But uh, Tim McGraw and Kenny Chesney, they, they did all right. They did okay, yeah. <laughs> they did all right. And we, me, me and Tim are still close. You know, I hadn't talked to Kenny in a while, but we were all really good friends. We ran around together a lot. Tim was already, he already had a couple songs out. Uh, but they really didn't have any impact. And then I got my deal, Sticks and Stones popped, and Tim came out with Indian Outlaw, and it was still a couple of years before before Kenny hit hard. 1991, here is Sticks and Stones. So when this song starts to get some traction, you're a brand-new artist. Mm -hmm. I mean, is the record label like, we knew it. We knew you were our guy. Like, are you treated differently? Rick Blackburn didn't believe in that song. Elroy Kahanic, who found me up in Daysville, Kentucky, believed in that song. He literally got in his car. He was the head of promotions at Atlantic, and he would drive all over the place and bring PDs out and stick them in the car in the parking lot and make them listen to it. Elroy Kahanic made that a hit. He, he shoved it down everybody's throat. But it was so different when it came on the radio. There was nothing else that was like it. And that was the thing that, that change in musical style, when I was trying to figure out... In the, the summer of 90, when I was living in Louisiana, what do I need to do? Because you got to think about all the stuff that would hap- that happened in 89. You had Alan Jackson that came out, Mark Chestnut, Vince Gill, uh, 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 Garth Brooks. It's all this new music, this new sound that was happening. And it was exciting back then. And, and I was like, I've got to go be a part of that. I've got to be, go be a part of it now. So when I, I got the shot to cut my record, and James Stroud and I were put together and all the wheels started turning on that kind of stuff. I mean, James had cut that first record on Clint Black. So I was with part of that new sound that was making that change in country music. That's when that young country slogan, that whole thing just exploded out of Nashville. It was it was awesome time. Did you get any pushback since your sound was different and every kind of different generation gets a pushback? Was there any there? You know... I never felt it personally toward me, and I know a lot of the the older guys. 
I heard the Waylands and the, the Haggards grumbling underneath the surface, you know, that they weren't getting airplay on the radio anymore. And there was a, there was not, it was not a, there's not a love, lot of love toward us from those guys early on. I think it kind of eased up as time went on. But the one person that I never felt that from was George Jones. Never. Uh, and, you know, George and Nancy, they found a way to embrace that change. And so they just they gathered us all up and made us part of I Don't Need No Rocking Chair and all that stuff. And he, I went on tour with Jones. So it was, it was, it was a great time. But George, um, they, they just approached it from a different perspective. But, yeah, there was, there was some pushback. But, you know, these guys have been getting airplay for 30-plus years, and then all of a sudden all these young kids are coming in town and the music's changed and taking over, and they're not getting airplay anymore. They're, they're a little bit bitter at times. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots. And Tacova's is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacova's has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort, little to no break in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet and the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The boar's nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the kids at St. Jude. St. Jude's been leading the way in the world's best survival rates for some of the most aggressive forms of childhood cancer. Your support means the families never get a bill from St. Jude for treatment or travel or housing or food. So the families can focus on helping their child live. And that really hits home for me because I've been to St. Jude many times. I've hung out with the kids, played music for the kids. I was in the hospital a lot as a kid. Now, I didn't have cancer, but if it wasn't for people stepping up, I don't know that I would have been able to go and stay in the hospital and be taken care of. So that's why we do this, take care of others. You can help St. Jude stop childhood cancer by becoming a partner in hope. When you do this, you'll get this awesome new, this shirt saves lives shirt. So join all the doctors and researchers, you know, and me in this fight and just text the word Bobby to 785-833. It's only six numbers, but text the word Bobby 
to 785-833. It's funny you bring up, I don't need your rocking chair. I mean, that to me, I can remember singing that. And I, George Jones was a bit before me. As I got yeah. older, I started to listen to more George Jones yeah. because I loved the format. I wanted to learn as much about country music as I could. Yeah. But when that song came out, I remember all you guys being on that song. Yeah. I mean, it was every country superstar I could have ever imagined on that song with him. And, would, and the ones of us that weren't on it, I didn't get to sing on the record, but I got to do it every night at the concert. Really? Yeah. There, there were so many. I, I was looking at um, the CMAs. Are, we're recording this, and they're actually tonight. But that song was nominated for a CMA. Yeah. And it was just like 17 people on that song. It was and I massive. thought it was so cool because every, all those people loved George Jones and respected George Jones. They did. But you know what? Uh, how could you not respect George? Look at look at what he had been through. He lived a life that, <laughs> I mean, he he survived himself and uh, and and lived to a place where he was able to to still be relevant in a time where the music business was changing all around him. You got to have a lot of respect for that. That first number one was in 1991. Now, were there singles that happened after that that did not hit as hard? Sticks and Stones hit hard. Uh, the couple of big ones off that record, so Sticks and Stones. The four off that album were Sticks and Stones, Today's Lonely Fool, Running Behind, that were number ones. And then Somebody Paints the Wall was a top five. So we had three number ones in the top five. Now, as we progressed into Alibis, which was my second release, uh, we had four number ones off of it. But there was some friction there because I was wanting to grow. By this time, Indian Outlaw had popped, and I was wanting to do a heavier guitar sound. And James and I were on board that, James Stroud, who produced the album. So we were we were pushing things. Alibis was a massive hit. When I remember being in the studio, we cut uh, "Can't Break It to My Heart," which was a single, and uh, uh, that track was originally cut with a screaming rock and roll guitar on it. And I thought the head of the label was going to blow his top, and he <laughs> lost his mind. Made us go back in and put a fiddle solo on it. There's too much rock and roll guitar; they couldn't stand it. Another song that was the number two airplay song of the year called "Can't Break It to My Heart" that I was a co-writer on. I thought he was going to drop me off the label because he told me not to cut it, and I cut it anyway. <laughs> it's wild to hear those stories about songs that I just associate being so freaking country. Yeah. I mean, now I look at those, and I'll play some alibis here. Uh, 1993, here's alibis. And here is Can't Break It to My Heart, where this is as country as I could, oh. as country of a song can be. Absolutely. This, he hated be. this song. Hated it. Hated everything about it. Why? I have no idea because he told me not to do it and I did it anyway. And that's why? Yeah, it wasn't so much <laughs> He didn't really like it, but, you know, there's, it, you know, I always say people ask, how, you know, when you get in the music business, when can you push? How do you know when to push? When you get momentum, you better push because if you don't, you'll never get it. When you get an opportunity to take advantage of a situation or you will never have any creative control your whole life. And I took advantage of the opportunity and, and I pushed back a little bit and, and I don't think they knew quite what to do with that. And I had managers that stood behind me too. I wasn't out there by myself. My managers fought the fight for me. What was your reputation after that? those first two albums? With, I was wild. Were you? Yeah. yeah. In a fun kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> so you're 25? Yeah. You're hitting it? Yeah. I mean, it's not like you came from, from much. So, I mean, what, what, what does everybody back home think? You know, I never thought about the impact that it would have on my whole family, but it, it changed everybody. You know, uh, 
I'm a, a kid that grew up in a town of 1,100 people. I graduated in the largest class that ever came out of the school. I think there was 52 of us and 49 graduated. I mean, that's yeah. almost exactly my town, it 700 is. people. And then and then to come to Nashville and, and do all the things when nobody knew anybody here. I mean, to be able to do all that, it, it affected my family. And, and some of it was, you know, there's a lot of jealousy, you know, all that stuff that goes on. It's It affected their lives. It affected my brothers and sisters in a lot of ways. Uh, but we survived it all. You know, did they treat you differently? Did you become like a celebrity to them? It's kind of hard not to. We grew past it, but I think there's a lot of excitement around it early on. Um, but you do have to adapt to it, and you do have to find a, a new normal. You, you know what I'm talking about. You have to make it as normal as you possibly can, and push all the the the, the background noise out of the way. Because if you don't, you can't deal with your stuff self in your own mind. You've got you've got to get back to just being normal you and doing your work and doing your thing and let people say what they want to say. It's easier for you to do it when you're getting on stage and you're getting that release and stuff at night than it is for the people that are still living there in the same house and right. doing the same things that they want. I gave a lot of cars away. I'll say I'll say that. I bought a lot of cars for family members. You know, anything that I could do to to to, to there's guilt attached to it. You know, oh, I struggle with that so much. There's so much guilt, and you, and you feel bad about being successful, and and but you you have to you have to make it as normal as possible. Yeah, that's voice. that's been a constant struggle for me. Yeah. Again, I grew up in poverty, and so you know I go back home, and my town is still impoverished. Absolutely, and I try to do as much as I can. And no matter how I do, I feel like dang, I should be doing more. I have more. Why don't I keep doing? It? And so there, I can never meet that. You know what I did is is there came a point. Uh, uh, and I did it for 15 years while I would go back home, and I did a charity concert there. And uh, I endowed two different scholarship funds. One was for SAU and one, one was a, a, a junior college in Texarkana. But we put money back. We gave money to the police department, the fire department, mm-hmm. the town beautification committee. We, we put stuff back in the town, you know, weights in the locker room and all the stuff for the football team. We did all that stuff until the point that it just got, you know, where – People didn't want to buy tickets anymore, you know, and I had used up all the freebies and swap outs with every friend I had in the music business after 15 years. And nobody, everybody wanted a free ticket. Nobody wanted to come and, and contribute back into their town anymore. It's like, you know, I'm done here. And uh, there comes a point in time when you got to walk away. Alabama did it from June Jam, too. There comes a point when it's time, I'm done. I don't feel guilty anymore. It's okay. <laughs> if a new artist called you today, we'll just call him Mike Smith. Yep. He's like, I got my first number one hit. Yeah. He's like, you've been through this, Tracy. Like, what would you tell a new artist who's just starting to get some of that heat? They got the first number one hit. Everyone's like, oh, you're the guy now. Like, what, what, are, the, what are the pitfalls that you see? Giving too much money away. You never know what tomorrow's going to hold. And it's not just in the music business. It's in the sporting world and everything else. The best advice is get a really good licensed, bonded financial planner and business manager that will take care of your money. Don't trust your managers. Don't trust nobody else. I agree in the world of separation. This person does this job, this does it. You have somebody that takes care of your money. Everybody gets paid accordingly. Everybody agrees to what they're getting. But don't leave anything out there to be taken advantage of because they will. It's it's too easy to do. Uh, and, and somebody that's going to be the voice of reason to you that will make you understand it's okay to do nice things for people. But you create, figure out what your disposable income is and secure the rest of it because there's no guarantees you're going to have a 10, 20-year career. There's no guarantees to that for anybody. 1993, my second home. I mean, this song, song put a smile on my face. You know, this is one of those songs that was not an impact record. 
So my my manager, Wayne Edwards at the time, uh, Wayne was a, a salty old dog. Now, Wayne, had uh, he had been a fighter pilot, supposedly. I'd heard a lot of stories. <laughs> Who knows? Wayne, uh, I do know that Wayne was a, a pretty heavy hitter promotion guy for RCA. He was one of the only people that Elvis trusted. So he was very knowledgeable. He knew everybody in radio. Uh, when I when he came on board with my management team, he was working an independent promotion account. He had an independent promotion company, so he was doing stuff on the side. Wayne knew how to make magic happen on the charts. I saw him take that record from seven to one on a dying breath. It was going to die, and he jumped. He, he didn't jump everything. He killed everything in front of it because you could manipulate things a little bit different back then than you do nowadays. It's not it's not easy to do that anymore. But he he knew how to make that stuff happen. You talk about how that song wasn't one of your impact records, but if the good die young, that's got to be one. That, Absolutely. I mean, a year later. Yeah. I want to roll through a couple of these here, but Texas Tornado, which you referenced a second ago. And then Pay Me a Birmingham is my favorite and what I think of with you most, but I think, and I could be wrong, but I would think Time Marches On. You know, Time, to me artistically is the best lyric that I ever recorded. Uh, and Bobby Braddock is an absolute genius. And I got to do some clarification. So Bob, Bobby texted me the other day, and I had said something. You know, over the years, there's I have a few blank spots along the way, so sometimes my memory is not 100% accurate. There's things that maybe have evolved a little bit through the course of time. And and I swear to God, in my mind, I remember sitting at the, at the desk with Don Cook, and uh, I, I, for the life of me, I really believe that Ronnie Dunn got his hands on this right after I did and tried to put it on hold. Well, Bobby sent me a text, and he was pretty upset about it. And he said, no, it wasn't Brooks and Dunn. Brooks and Dunn, Kicks didn't like the song at all, and Ronnie never heard it, and it didn't get tried to put on hold by them. He said it was, it, it was uh, um, uh, Tim Dubois over at Arista that had put it on for Diamond Rio and for Alan Jackson is who it was put on hold for. So I, my memory wasn't 100%. So I apologize to Bobby Braddock. <laughs> this is the first time I've had a chance to do that. So I hope it goes everywhere and you hear this, Bobby. I love you, brother. <laughs> Uh, so you cut time march, or as you call it, time. Time marches on. Well, that's what's on the set. Yeah, that's what you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, was that a for sure single? You know, it was for me. Uh, so that there were some things that happened through that progression right there. James Stroud had done the first three albums that I'd done, and that was uh, Sticks and Stones, Alibis, and I Sit Now. Uh, and James and I sat down and had a conversation. I said, James... I'm hearing the same musicians on everybody that you're working with. He's doing McGraw now. He's doing John Anderson. He's doing, you know, Clint Black. And, and it's like, I got to make a change. So we had a little bit of an issue there. And I went with Don Cook. Really liked the sound and what he was cutting on Brooks and Dunn at the time. Uh, huge, completely different section of players. Just really, really dug the groove he had. And so that song came to me just because of that new relationship with Don. And it was really fresh for me. I remember the thing that drove me. See, at that time, as as we had evolved past uh, alibis and a little friction with the label and all these things, and I really had, had some strong legs underneath me where I had control of my career, the thing that made me cut that song specifically, the one thing that did was it smokes a lot of dope because I knew it would shock people. I knew it had shock factor to it, and and everybody was terrified of it. I knew it would either be the biggest record that I'd ever had or it would kill my career, but there was no in-between. Were that, people saying, don't cut that line, change the word? There was No, it was like we I, I swung for the fence, absolutely. And, and the weird thing about it, so if the world had a front porch was on the album previous to that, 
and there's a song, a line in there, uh, uh, Granddaddy Taught Me How to Cuss and How to Pray. I had a couple of radio stations that wouldn't play it because it said the word cuss in it. Not even, you're not cussing. Didn't it just cuss, wouldn't say the, the word, word cuss. cuss. Yeah, absolutely. So were there stations that wouldn't play, smokes a lot of dope? Did anyone come to you and go, we can't was, do it? It was so big, they couldn't stop it. That song was Isn't massive. that a great problem to have? Absolutely. And you bet on you. Yeah. Like you said, I believe in this. Absolutely. We're going to tank it or we're going to just kill. Swing for the fence, man. That's awesome. Where do you put that in your set list? Uh, it is right before Paint Me Birmingham. I would think it's yeah. got to be. It's, would, it's that escalation where you're just peeking out at the end of the night, man. You could probably hold the mic out, the whole crowd. Time at, marches on. It smokes a lot of dope. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one that smokes a lot of dope. <laughs> Absolutely. Time marches on. Ten years later, and I get to this because you mentioned McGraw and Chesney around the same time that you got here. Yeah. You do find out who your friends are. Yeah. 2006. Now, was this kind of a, hey, I'm back, boys. I'm back, baby. The three of us had talked about doing something together for a long time. Um, we were just waiting for the right song to come along. And when I when I'd got this song from Casey Bethard, I really hadn't thought about this being a duo or a trio. And we had a finished the song. I had a finished vocal on it. I was done. And I'm like, you know what? This lyric screams to me that this is what we've been looking for as friends, old friends that have been talking about doing something like this for a long time. So I just picked up the phone, called them, and sent them a copy of it. And they were both like, let's do it, man. And we, we got in the studio and knocked it out. There was no labels involved. There were no conversations. Really? You didn't have to go through any? any... We, they, yeah, they, they really wanted us to. But they, by the time anybody found out about it, it was done. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, as we talk about Impact songs, I pulled a few of these that if you just would have quizzed me, I would have said, oh, yeah, these are his biggest songs ever because these are the songs that I love the most. Uh, Stars Over Texas is one of those. Yeah. That I'm assuming when you sing this, people sing it top of their lungs. You know, uh, this song is kind of an anomaly in my set list because it's really one of the very few positive lyrics that I've ever recorded. I don't do these very much. Most of my stuff is crying in your beer. It's cheating, love gone wrong, all that kind of stuff. That's the stuff I sink my teeth into. So this is a very rare thing. You know, I, I never did the I swear things or any of that stuff. This is the only one that I've ever done like this. I'd imagine this was a big wedding song yeah. for a long time. Probably still is. Yeah. But I would imagine like this was... Just such a love yeah. wedding. Because it was so left of center for me. This is not this is not my bread and butter. Well, why'd you cut it then? Because I wrote it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And I and it was one of those things that it, it it was just so good. You could not cut it. It was just a really me and Paul Nelson and Larry Boone wrote that song. I'll be a better man better. I mean, yeah. also another one. Yeah. Better man better. Not a number one, but one if you go list Tracy's top ten and I'm like, oh for sure. This is an encore better. song. This this was a big one. Uh, you know, and this is a continued part of the the musical growth through that period of time. This this is my free bird, man. This is the guitar play off at the end. This is this is what that was for me. I, and I, I thought sonically it was really one of the best sounding records I ever cut. Are you now feeling an appreciation for you, your music, your style, unlike any other time in your life? Because people, and I'll just use me as an example, now I'm starting to, in this industry, get some prominence. And I look at what was the best? What affected me the most to get me here? And it's people like you and music from you. Are you feeling this more than ever before? You know what really brought that into focus for me is when we did an album uh, three or four years ago called Good Old Days. And uh, I took a lot of those hits and went in the studio and, and uh, Chris Young sang on If the Good Die Young. Dustin Lynch did Time Marches On. 
Uh, Justin Moore did alibis with me, so there was there was a lot of people that were on that record, and and I you know I never had really sat down and and realized what an impact I'd had on a lot of the younger artists that were coming into town, but across the board, all of them when they came in the studio and sat down with me, it was it was pretty overwhelming for me to realize that I'd had that kind of impact on those kids, and since that moment, I I really felt uh, an embrace from the younger generation that's coming in. I feel it when I walk in a room. And I, and I can't say that I felt that for a long time. Do you feel it at your shows, too? Because not only do you have your fans, but, like, the kids of your fans who now have an appreciation, not because of their parents, but because that sound from the 90s, early 2000s, is like the sound again. I feel like it is. I feel like people are uh, they're rediscovering it again. And it's it's... I've said this for a long time that I felt like the bulk of the music from the 90s and from that era, that was going to be our classic rock that gets replayed for a long, 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 long time. Uh, and a lot of it is because of sonic, sonically the way that it sounds when it's played on the radio. Uh, but I do, I do feel that from a lot of younger people. And they have access to so much stuff, mm-hmm. you know, because if they, if, if they grew up loving Paint Me a Birmingham and they really didn't hear any other stuff from me through that period of time, they, all they got to do is go on Spotify or Pandora or whatever, and it's all right there. Go to YouTube and you can find it all. And I think being able to have that instant access to not only know what the hits were, but be able to go through and find the stuff that you like that maybe never found its way to radio. And I, I mean, I get requests for things that I've never even worked up with a band before. So there's stuff that people are finding. <laughs> Just a B-side on a, on a record back in the day. Yeah, and, and I think that's pretty cool. The Spotify had put out some data showing what people listen to most when they listen to country, and 90s country was their biggest. Absolutely. I believe it. Hundred percent. You know, uh, the other thing that I've noticed from a production standpoint too, and you you probably know this too, being in radio, because you can hear how things line up. It's like sonically things things work in ten year groupings. So you'd go through the early eighties all the way through about eighty eight, and then you had your Garth Brooks era that kind of changed everything, and that went through about ninety seven, ninety eight, right in through there. And what happened was the recording techniques changed. The first album that I recorded was recorded on a 24-track analog machine. The next one was on 48 Dig, and then we started moving into Pro Tools and hard drives and all that kind of stuff. So as we phase tape out, you're able to sonically push those sounds up. If you listen to how much verb and how much looser things are mic'd with the recording, recording process, every 10 years it gets a little tighter, it gets a little more compressed, it gets shoved up in your face a little bit. That's why the stuff from right now... Uh, if you're playing all contemporary music on a format right now, it's really hard to go back and play an old Merle song because sonically it doesn't fit. Even if you love the song and it's got its time and place, you just can't get it loud enough to sit in the pocket in the right place. You know what I'm talking about? I do about? know what you're talking about because there are times when I'm even playing because I have pretty much freedom to do what I want at this point yeah. and I'll play some old Johnny Cash stuff on the air, even like Get Rhythm, right? Yeah. Get Rhythm. And as much as I love the song, if I'm playing it up against other songs, that have been, doesn't right. it doesn't, it it lacks the oomph. It does. Like the sound. Then it it almost diminishes the record. And then if you over compress it, then it loses something too, because it's it's not it's not the way that it was meant to be played. Uh, but that's why I, that's why I, I really have pondered on how music evolves and the stages that it takes. As as some artists get phased out, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a natural natural part of the evolution of music getting phased out. The gold things that sonically stay in place. Sometimes a gold song stays there because it just sounds better than the cat rest, rest of the catalog. We all we understand that, but it's it's a fascinating thing to ponder on watching the musical evolution of the industry. 
This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacovas boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah, that's what the whole store basically is: fresh leather, yep. friendly staff, or like the smell of staff. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift too! Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How do the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the kids at St. Jude. St. Jude's been leading the way in the world's best survival rates for some of the most aggressive forms of childhood cancer. Your support means that families never get a bill from St. Jude for treatment or travel or housing or food. So the families can focus on helping their child live. And that really hits home for me because I've been to St. Jude many times. I've hung out with the kids, played music for the kids. I was in the hospital a lot as a kid. Now, I didn't have cancer, but if it wasn't for people stepping up, I don't know that I would have been able to go and stay in the hospital and be taken care of. So that's why we do this, take care of others. You can help St. Jude stop childhood cancer by becoming a partner in hope. When you do this, you'll get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. So join all the doctors and researchers, you know, and me in this fight and just text the word Bobby to 785-833. It's only six numbers, but text the word Bobby to 785-833. Who did you see come in after you? Because, you know, when you and you, you mentioned the young guns of country come in and the older guys went, oh, man, this is not what we're doing. It's, it's a bit different. Who did you see come in as an artist after you? And you went, wow, that's not what we're doing. It's a bit different. And they just, they really killed it. Freaking Urban, man. Keith Urban was the bomb. And still like him a lot, man. But he, he was, I remember that first record on the ranch that came out. Uh, I, I just, I thought he was bad at the bottom, man. And I really dug his sound, and I, I really enjoyed watching his evolution. And uh, Aldine, too. Aldine's got a great sound. I, I really like Michael Knox's productions and the, what he's done with them. Uh, but there's been a handful of them. 
Uh, it's, but I, I tend to lean into the wind a little bit. I like the more aggressive stuff, not the sappy pop stuff, the more heavy rock and roll guitar stuff that's just in your face. Hindsight 2020 Volume 2, Price of Fame, out now. Yes. It's been out since August. Yes. What month are we? I don't even know what month we're in now. Yeah. We're in November, yes. late November. <laughs> this year's flown by, man. So I want to play a couple clips here. So let's do uh, from Volume 2, uh, Price of Fame with Eddie Montgomery. Cool. Price of Fame is an expensive thing. You're going to pay if you play this game. How'd you and Eddie get together for this song? You know, I uh, I co-wrote that song in about uh, 2013, something like that. It was before I changed management companies. So I wrote that with Rick Huckabee, who I've been working with off and on for years, and Brad Arnold from Three Doors Down. I love Brad. He's my buddy, man. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we had had that thing sitting in the can for a while. And, and uh, I... When we got done with Volume 1, which was all new stuff, and we were kind of figuring out what the next stage of, of the whole trilogy was that we were working on, we decided we were going to do five old remakes and then five new songs. Uh, and as I was looking at what I had, stuff that I would written and where we wanted to take it, Eddie and I have been friends a long time, and, and this song is about sacrifice and things that we lose in the business. Not whining about that kind of stuff, but we all do make some sacrifices. You give, you give a piece of yourself along the way with some of this. You have to make sacrifices. Uh, and some of them are pretty painful, you know, and, and knowing that uh, you just the, the personal loss that Eddie's been through. I mean, when T-Roy died, it, it jerked the rug out from under him. And, you know, I know a lot of his personal issues, too. And I, I just didn't think there was anybody that could sink his teeth into that song more than Eddie could. Another song I liked from uh, from this project was uh, with Tracy Bird, Holes in the Wall. Yes. I pulled this one. Yeah. Well, the pictures of her used to hang. There have only been a couple songs that you've like, like, smiled right when I when I mentioned it. This is one of them. You lit up a little bit. I'm doing this in the show, man. I love the honky tonk stuff, man. It's uh, I've always liked it since I was a kid. It just uh, it it makes me happy. Even if if and and that's what people don't understand about country. People that really don't get into it. Just because it's a sad lyric and it's talking about bad things that go on in your life doesn't doesn't mean it's not supposed to make you happy. Because it does. That song brings a smile to my face. I was reading too that. In January, you have uh, more music coming out. Volume three. So the whole premise of this thing with the the headlights, the hindsight's twenty twenty collection. This is my this year is my thirtieth anniversary. In May of this year, it would have been thirty years since I cut sticks and stones. So we decided that to commemorate that, we wanted to do three albums, ten songs apiece, three volumes to commemorate the whole thing. Volume three would have been out the first of this month, but we had some COVID issues back in September and I couldn't get in the studio to finish vocals. And then we got kicked out of the distribution release cycle. So now I think the official release date is now the 28th of January for the third album. Whenever I was just kind of looking at some of the stuff that we had done on uh, like the, my national countdown, back from volume one, we had Lonely 101, right? Yeah. We played mm-hmm. this. And so, you know, I think we talked. You'd talk, yeah, we, we did. Yeah, yeah. Talk. But I was thinking, I was like, I know I played something from Volume yeah. One on like the National Countdown show. Let me shut up and play a little bit of this for for people here. That's Lonely One Oh One. I mean, you still got it. It's like, a you good st- record, right but you there, still man. got that voice, like yeah. that that same Tracy Lawrence, like like texture. Like you haven't. I still love I feel it, like man. you haven't lost it. I still love it. 
How is how is your like physical voice these days? Right now, my physical voice is is struggling. We we went from doing nothing last year to doing you know instead of going back and doing a couple of days normal normal work days normal work weeks, I went to doing three and four. Uh, I had uh, thirteen shows in uh, October, two golf tournaments that I had to sing at. A, uh, a television special with Lee Greenwood in Huntsville and a political rally for a, a senator here in the state. I had 17 events, and I was fried, and I'm saying it every one of them. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of the place where I, I feel like I'm just kind of holding on. I'm just trying to get through the end of the year right now. I'm, you, I'm pretty burnt. You get a little break, though, for Thanksgiving and Christmas or no? Uh, the week I'm taking, after I get done with my charity event at the National Rescue Mission, the week of Thanksgiving, I'm taking the weekend off and uh, do some stuff with the family, and uh, then I only have like, Five dates in January. I shut down. He's taking the weekend off. He's like, I have no voice, but I'm going to take two whole days. Uh, I, a couple of you mentioned uh, with the Nashville Rescue, which is something that people you're just beloved around here because of of what you do with the yeah. you know with with feeding folks. How did how did that start with you? That started with me and a few buddies frying turkeys in, in the uh, parking lot at the house, uh, and uh, and offering that service up to old people at the church or people that were scared of frying and everything. Sometimes we'd get up Thanksgiving, we might cook 20 turkeys and wrap them up and, and go deliver them and do that kind of thing. And it's like, you know, this would be a great thing to do at the mission. I've always wanted to do something for them. I've always felt a connection. And uh, after that year, I think, I think this is our 16th year. So we, I, I reached out to the people at the rescue mission. I said, I've got this idea. We'd like to try this. And they said, sure, come on. So I, the first year that we did it, we borrowed uh, propane tanks from the folks at the church I was going to at the time. And uh, everybody brought their own fryers. And we uh, we got people to donate as many turkeys as we could. And I, I think we cooked 100 turkeys or something like that. And then the next year we started picking up sponsorship. And then we got fryers donated. And then all this stuff kind of ballooned into this thing that we do now. It's massive now. It is. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it's uh, we, we cook all that they can store. And so we could cook a lot more. But usually we get to about 500 or so. And they don't have the refrigeration capacity to keep more than that. So they'll debone everything, feed it throughout the week. Uh, but uh, we, we've got a, got some plans to grow a little bit more locally next year. I want to do more stuff with more outreach programs locally and be able to affect more people. I was talking with a friend. I said, hey, Tracy Lawrence is coming over. And he was like, ask him about the time he was shot. <laughs> now, some people in my life that have been shot don't like talking about when they were shot. It's uh, It was a, a tough time in my life. That happened uh, uh, May of 91. I just finished the background vocals on the last track on the album. And I had a friend of mine that came in town that I'd grown up with, a young lady that I graduated high school with, completely platonic relationship. And uh, she was excited. She was coming through to go see some other folks we graduated with that lived in Indiana. And so she stayed a couple of nights, came to the studio. We went out. I took her to some of the bars and stuff that I liked to frequent. We had a couple of beers, and I was taking her back to drop her off at her hotel, opened the door, and had a pistol stuck in my face. And uh, they were trying to force us up to her room. They were going to do, you can imagine what. And uh, I was able to fight him off, and she uh, ran to the front of the hotel, and they emptied two pistols on me. I've had a gun to my head. I was on Little it's Rock. It's not fun. It's, it, you were shot. I thank God I wasn't shot. I remember that. I, I got pistol whipped, but I didn't feel it. Yeah. You know, they had a gun to my head, and they're like, I, I couldn't remember my PIN number. Like, I, I blanked out where I was like, I don't know my PIN number to get in the ATM. And so yeah. they pistol whipped me, and I was like, I don't feel that. And I was just praying, like, please don't pull the trigger. But because I don't remember it, or didn't feel it. Did you feel when you got shot? I didn't feel the initial impact, but what I do remember is that they shot my the the, the worst of it. I got I, I grabbed the pistol with my left hand. The guy was right behind me, and I grabbed the gun, and it, sh- it went off and shot my finger. 
And then, uh, uh, so I hit him in the mouth. The other people came back on me. She took off running to the front. And they, the, I got hit in the hip, which I still carry a bullet there. I got hit in the upper right arm. And they shot me right through the left knee, right through the joint, from the outside of the leg all the way through. So I had three three surgeries and wound up having to have a total knee replacement in, in 2016. So this is 91, though? This was uh, May of 91. This happened before you, I mean. No, it was, it was a random thing. But I know, but I'm saying you went through, you then got to have major success after you were shot multiple times. Yeah. yeah. Like you toured after you had to go through all of this. The, and the bad thing about it, you know what I, I you know how how fragile a launch is, and and if you've got the priority of anybody at a record label or the powers that be, you better capitalize on your opportunity while you have that moment because they're going to move on to the next flavor of the month pretty quick if you don't hit or get something rolling. So I'm 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 getting ready to drop my first record. I got all this momentum, all this belief around me, and here I am. I can't even freaking walk. That's my point. And I'm and I'm like I'm mad. I'm mad that that I'm about to lose my slot, and yeah. and if I don't come back quick, so I never took care of my mental health. I, I didn't rehab properly. I had a lot of physical issues with it that have that have plagued me for years and years and years that I still struggle with to this day. But I knew that if I didn't get out of that hospital bed and get back on the bus as fast as I could and start working that first album, that I'd lose my shot, and I probably wouldn't get another shot. And that was my point with you toured. Like, you had success. You probably went back too early. If you pull up the Sticks and Stones album cover, I don't know if y'all have it, but if you look at the back shot, I'm in a pair of red acid wash jeans, and you can tell how skinny I am. I lost so much weight through that because I was, I was in the hospital bed for a while. Uh, and they literally, we, we did a photo shoot for that album. Part of it was done out at Percy Priest, and I'm, I'm actually bent down on a rock. And they had to carry me out there because I couldn't walk on that left leg. So they literally, I literally got on a guy's back, and he carried me out there and set me on that rock. And I can't bend my knee. So I'm, you can tell by the way I'm sitting that 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 knee is i mean it's it's probably as big as a cantaloupe in that photo too but i'd lost so much weight through that period i i really i really needed to take six months before i got out there and started doing what i did and how much you take oh so uh that would have happened in may i i think i was probably on the road july august wild stupid but but i didn't have a choice right you know here i mean i I had to without a doubt just wild that too much because it's not like you can go half throttle either. No. That single dropped in August. Six and Stones dropped in August. So I had to. Was that a big story then? They used it. The label used it for everything they could squeeze out of it because it it, it, it just gave us something to talk about. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do it, but I didn't have any control over it. Uh, but, you know, who, who's to say, would, would they have been able to launch my career without that nugget? Uh, I would have preferred not to get shot. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, Got to take advantage of the opportunities you're given. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacova's has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like, it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet and the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. 
Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events, there is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The boar's nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Hey, it's Amy Brown here to talk about the incredible work that's being done by St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and to ask you today to join me in becoming a partner in hope. When you make a donation to St. Jude, you're helping an organization that has helped push the overall childhood cancer survivor rate from 20% to more than 80%. And I can tell you from personal experience, that number and the hope that it brings is invaluable. Families do not have to worry about a thing. Treatment is covered, travel, housing, food. And when you're a family that's going through this, like imagine you're a parent, your kid gets cancer. You need to focus on that child. You don't need to be worrying about other things and financial stuff can get really stressful. St. Jude covers it. Your support means families never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment. And when you sign up for just $19 a month, you're going to get the new This Shirt Saves Lives tee. So join me in helping St. Jude in the fight against childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope and text Bobby to 785-833. That's B-O-B-B-Y to 785-833. 30 years, volume one, two, and three, 10 tracks per volume. Yes. What is the key to longevity in country music? For me, uh, it, it continues to be passion. Because if I didn't still care about it, I don't, I don't think I could deal with the grind of it. Because it, it, the older you get, the harder it gets. And, and uh at, and somewhere in the very near future, I'm going to have to start slowing down to some degree because I've been grinding it out for a long time. I mean, Back in the day when you were doing interviews, did you have to pull over to a payphone to do an interview with a radio station? You know, back then, we went to the stations. Uh, when we did showcases back then, they weren't like what they are now. We would actually, before Elliot Spitzer stuck his nose in it, we, we would actually build. I did four showcases that launched my career. I did one in Atlanta. I did one in Marina Del Rey, I did one in Dallas, and I did one in New York City. And so you would do those regional things where each person, each each regional promotion person would set that up, and you would do a banquet hall or whatever. The one in New York was at Radio City Music Hall. So they would fly all the radio people in, put them up at a hotel, feed them, drink them. You'd do a showcase. There'd usually be at least two acts from the label on the bill, and they would come out, and they would work those folks to get them to the PDs and, the, and all those. So you worked a region at a time instead of having to go to every individual station like we do now. So radio tour back then was you go to the hubs, and the stations come to you. 
yeah. because they made it appealing to the stations because it's like, hey, we're going to be a, a vacation, basically. Absolutely. And then you would do follow-ups. You would go do some station visits and stuff, but you were able to get everybody together and create that festive atmosphere, and, and uh, you'd do your show, and they liked you or they didn't. You ever go back to the Bluebird and play? Uh, you know, it's been a while, but the last thing I did there, uh, I've done some acoustic shows there. We were talking about doing uh, 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 The Price of Fame, uh, a video for The Price of Fame there with me and Eddie doing it, and we just couldn't get the time frame worked out. We just couldn't get it all squeezed in. But I thought it would have been real cool to do part of this 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 memory collection of all of that in that place. How hard has it been to start your own label and manage that? <sighs> you know, Friends was on my own label. That was after I, after DreamWorks merged with Universal. I had a couple of records there, and then I, I, I got off of that. So when I got Friends to number one, that was that was on my own label. That was the first single on my own imprint, uh, and it was what I thought was very expensive at that time. Uh, now it's about three times the cost to work a single up radio, I mean, and, and it's almost impossible as an independent label without an in-house promotion staff. And I know that's hard to explain to people, but just trying to hire a staff to do it, an outside promotion staff, is very expensive. Uh, radio stations really want you to have an in-house promotion staff, but to do that, you got to have three or four acts because you got to spread that recoupment around a little bit, or it's financially absolutely impossible to make it work. And I never did have the resources to put that whole kind of thing together. So, you know, but we have tools out there now. We've got a lot of great streaming platforms. We get a lot of love from YouTube and all the all the things that we're able to do without working mainstream radio have been very useful tools for me. You know? I say, hey, we should save his voice, and I keep it for an hour. Do we notice how this went? It's all good, man. I, I just can't. I, I just have so much. Okay, here's what I'm going to say. Volume 1 and 2 are out now. Yes. Volume 3 is out January 28th. Yes. We, we know for sure January and 28th. And the title of it is called Angelina. And why? Uh, it was one of the coolest things I found. It's uh, the, the opening line is, uh, her mama was a Mississippi roller derby queen, and her daddy learned his hustle down in New Orleans. So it's, a, it's just a straight-ahead honky-tonk song. Pretty cool track. Volume 1, Volume 2 are out. Volume 3 out January 28th. You can follow the real Tracy Lawrence. I was following the fake Tracy Lawrence for a while, just not the same. <laughs> guy's a real tool. You know, man, I get. Every, it seems like every week somebody that I know is sending me this. Is this really you? It's like, got to stop these people, man. They're, they're, they're cutting 30 heads a week trying to get these people. But you can't stop them, man. It's just constant. The real Tracy Lawrence. Uh, he's busy. He's only got a weekend off, basically. He's got to he- completely heal on a weekend, but he's done. He done bigger. He's done bigger. He got shot. and He was on the road a day later. There you go, uh, Tracy. Good to talk to you, man. Always, my friend. Just Thank you. Uh, keep killing it. Thank you. Buddy. You know, so much respect from me to you. And if it wasn't for guys like you, guys like me wouldn't be in this business now. Hey, I appreciate. So that. yeah, just a massive fan. There he is. You guys go follow at the real Tracy Lawrence. Volume one and two are out now. Volume three comes out January twenty eighth. All right, there we go. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand 
in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. Stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. You can probably spell it. You probably know it. Tacovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 